Welcome to another Ape Reality. I'm Tom Barbelay, and today I have the pleasure of chatting with Bob Mottram. Hello, Bob. Hello, Tom. Somewhat covertly, I put out a release of the Noble Ape Simulation recently, which is 694 for folks who are listening in in the future. There have been a number of changes. Most of them have been done by you, associated with uh, what's gone in with Noble Ape since the last version. Right. Just from my own writing, I've just uh, submitted a chapter. Who knows if it'll get accepted? I've been relatively critical of a number of the other chapters that I've seen associated with this particular time. But I've just uh, submitted a chapter for a Springer book called Origin of Mind, which at the time tried to distill some of the kind of internal, external elements of the brain code which I've referred to externally as the narrative engine. Can you talk a little bit about some of the changes? Because having actually written that chapter, you then actually quite dramatically changed the way the brain code was handled in terms of numerous external apes and a mapping on the internal. Can you just talk a little bit about the kind of evolution of brain code in your own thinking? Well, brain code is uh, very loosely based on red code from a, a game called Core Wars. I believe there are some other... A live systems that are based around that kind of idea, uh, but I, I wasn't really aware of those to any great extent. It just seemed to me that if you're trying to simulate communication or language, um, then something like natural language is going to be similar to a Turing machine in, in terms of its grammatical structure. Um, so that's why I kind of went for that sort of approach. Plus, it's just interesting to see programs that aren't really being pushed around by the designer, they're just initially random, and they just do what they do. There's no sort of um, goal system or optimization that's going on necessarily. They're just sort of free to roam, if you like. In terms of the more recent changes to brain code, uh, originally it was just a, an inner part and an outer part, with the out, outer part being linked when two apes chat. Those two outer parts com come together, but otherwise it's just the inner and the outer in a sort of internal dialogue. One of the changes I made to that was just to reduce the instruction set, which was getting a bit bloated. I think it's probably a, a good idea to try and keep the instruction set as small as possible, uh, just because the amount of memory available for the code is fairly limited. And if you keep the instruction set small, uh, you should be able to fit a bit more in there and um, make it a bit more expressive as well. Uh, if you just randomly choose an instruction, there should be more chance of it doing something uh, interesting rather than just getting bogged down in very uh, esoteric aspects of, say, sensing or actuation. And one of the main things that I've done recently is alter the way that the brain code is arranged such that it's inside the social graph now. And I think that's a bit more realistic in terms of thinking about theory of mind, so that when apes are chatting, they're sort of customising their communication to who they're chatting to. So they could be using individual strategies for communication. Also, there's an aspect where it's it's actually copying the outer part of the brain code based on similarity in who you're talking to. So if you're talking to somebody who is similarly on, similar on the friend or foe scale, then you, and you haven't met them before, there's a kind of prejudice function, which factors in a lot of genetic and learned factors to, to sort of calculate an initial friend or foe value. And the initial uh, outer brain code that's assigned to that particular individual uh, is just picked based on that. So it just picks the, the nearest friend or foe value and then copies the brain code over from that other individual. So that's a kind of initial bias. And you could have some effects based on that, I think. 
So in terms of brain code as a thing, in terms of the instruction set, mm-hmm. how was it really going back to core or initially in terms of their instruction set? It was, yes, it was indeed. I actually looked at the, uh, the red code instruction set and went through it and I actually copied many of the instructions there, or at least in spirit, if not in actual detail. So for example, um, in red code, the data instruction causes the program to stop whereas in brain code it doesn't. It can just continue through any data instructions. It is interesting because I think Vida as well uses similar instructions. Right, and I've only found that out very recently just by reading some stuff about that. Yeah, it is, it is interesting. I came to do a talk on uh, the narrative engine brain code a couple of weeks ago, and there was an instruction at that time associated with spreading rumours that was a primary instruction. Right which struck me as a little bit out of place. Can you talk about, after implementing Red Code and then kind of noble-izing it, can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about the propagation and then what you've described in terms of the dramatic reduction of instructions? Right. Well, in terms of spreading information, there is a, a sort of a spreading of anecdotes in that each ape keeps track of recent events that have occurred to us in something called an episodic memory. And that's just a very simple... It's just a simple list, really, of uh, things like eating or mating or swimming and things like this. And for most of the most of the, the history of that, it was just purely individual. Uh, but I thought it would be good to be able to spread that sort of information around to, to make it a, bit, a little bit more uh, cultural, if you like. Uh, so there, there is a, a brain code instruction called ANE for anecdote. If if the code hits that instruction um, during chat then one of these episodic memories can be passed over uh, from one ape to the other. Uh, the episodic memory now includes both the... the it actually includes um, links to two apes, whereas previously it only included one, which was the other, uh, which was any other ape that was interacted with. Um, so now you can have memories about events which occur to other, other individuals. And I included that in some of the, uh, the logging as well on the, the long-term program in a long term uh, and you can see that gradually over time about 80% of episodic memories are native they're about yourself and about 20% are about other individuals something that I've talked about in the recent biota recordings relates to how we actively communicate this kind of thing to an external observer I mean you are, are now completely the kind of standard bearer of noble ape as a thing associated with all these amazing uh, details that you in large part have added. But the thing that interests me and particularly about this academic writing, but you also find this just in, you know, broader society, how do you actively communicate what is going on with noble ape currently without people just thinking this sounds so completely disconnected from any previous example that we've had associated even with artificial life and computer simulation. Do you have any thoughts about how we actively communicate what we're doing to an external observer? Right. Well, I can appreciate that it is tricky because uh, some of the stuff that I've done isn't exactly in the mainstream of artificial intelligence um, thinking or research. It's, It's more like applying sort of sociological concepts to intelligence. Um, in terms of spread of ideas and uh, spread of culture and things like that, and sort of 
having the self as a construction, which is a sort of cultural construction of other minds. In terms of how to communicate that, well, you can certainly, um, as you've done, you can certainly have academic papers on that. Um, it could be explained in probably a lot more detail than I've currently explained it. In terms of a more general audience, audience it's probably more difficult um, because a general audience probably may not quite appreciate some of the concepts. Um, so probably more, maybe more diagrams of exactly what's going on. Probably the ultimate would be uh, going back to things that you've said in the past, which would be uh, some kind of plain English or at least a human intelligible script or sort of narrative of telling you exactly what, what apes are telling each other and things like that. I made some attempts with the web server to do that, but it probably no doubt could be expanded quite a bit into something which is a bit more entertaining to read. I think what you're describing here still requires a kind of internal, almost kind of monastic element, you know, and this is something that strikes me with <laughs> some elements of the artificial life community that we have gone to a stage now where the gap between describing these things and what is actively going on is so different right. that um, we are almost at a loss. I mean, I thought particularly in terms of popular descriptions, you know, documentaries, these kind of things, or some of the stuff that I've done in the UK on BBC Radio 4 and here on, you know, talk radio in terms of just introducing the concepts. But we're always prefaced against this really strong narrative of Kurzweil et al. associated with what technology and what we're trying to do is in a kind of popular consciousness. So it's right. very difficult to actively describe these things. And I think increasingly we are becoming monastic in our endeavours to the point where finding means of actually describing this externally is very difficult. I've tried, as you've, if you've noted, in yes. academic papers doing some of this. And I'm also trying uh, externally, now I'm, now I'm based in Silicon Valley, doing talks uh, to, to, you know, whoever will listen. Uh, because I think there are some very powerful elements here that could drastically reshape, uh, well, the, the social aspect of computation, which increasingly is talked about associated with Facebook, Twitter, et al., but also more important fundamentals, which just aren't being tracked by even some of the largest computer companies here. So, yeah, it does strike me as a strange disconnect. And I think the thing that you've embraced, which is something that I'm also trying to understand and still, is Noble Ape as a palette for experimentation and moving in these various directions. Can you describe, I mean, if possible what the past, you know, two, three years of your experience working on Noble Ape has been like? Well, it's been interesting, certainly. Um, mainly, from my point of view, I was interested in problems that involved multiple minds. So a lot of the stuff that I've done in the past has been very much about the individual mind, sort of perceiving the world, uh, understanding what's going on in the world. Uh, but if you want to understand things that are more complicated, passage of knowledge from generation to generation, then you really need to start thinking about multiple minds. And a few years back, I was reading a book written by Ben Goetzel uh, called The Hidden Pattern. Uh, and in that, he, he vaguely described at one point that intelligence was really more about, or it, it existed as much between minds as it, did, as it did within minds. And that kind of uh, caught my imagination a little bit. So I was kind of uh, looking around and, and thinking about how it might be possible to um, try and extend my view a little bit to, to 
to span more than just an individual mind. I'd, on the previous comments, I'd agree that Kurzweil's uh, narrative is, is very strong um, in computer science and amongst technology people. Uh, many of the people that I know are quite influenced by those ideas. I think those ideas have some merit, uh, but they're certainly not the whole picture. I think that people who strongly subscribe to Kurzweil's view, the singularitarian view, uh, tend to be uh, strong reductionists. Uh, they believe that uh, knowledge comes very much from um, the individual mind, just thinking about things. If you had a box with a simulated brain or a real brain in it, uh, if it was uh, incredibly smart, it would just be able to think uh, all of the things that could possibly be thought and uh, sort of uh, bootstrap itself in that way into superintelligence, as they call it. But I think a more realistic view of intelligence is that uh, it's actually linked to the, the outside world that ideas aren't just from individual minds. They're about interacting with the world and interacting with other minds particularly. Um, there was something that also that um, a fellow that uh, I had some interactions with a long time ago um, called Chris McKinstry wrote about um, the possibility of um, intelligence being based on more than just a single mind. Uh, he wrote an article, I forget what it was called. It was something, something along those lines, uh, which was published posthumously, I think. So it's, it's certainly an interesting area, and um, I think there's plenty of scope for thinking about combinations of the sort of thing that Stephen Wolfram's come up with in terms of automata theory, uh, combining that with, if you apply, apply those sort of ideas in a sort of sociological kind of context, you can think of ideas as spreading in a sort of a class four computational sort of way. And that gives you a different sort of perspective on what societies are, how ideas, ideas originate, um, and that sort of thing. Um, another thing that I might mention, mention is that um, coming from the singularitarian school, there's a sort of great alarm and panic about programs modifying themselves. If you look on some of the AGI forums, you can see all sorts of uh, wackiness coming up from this, saying we must keep AIs in a sandbox, we must uh, prevent them from uh, modifying their own code. But uh, obviously in some of the A-Life programs and also in Noble Ape with the brain code, uh, you can see that this is a, in quotes, radically self-modifying, in quotes, system. And you can see that it doesn't lead to the kinds of effects that uh, many singularitarians predict. So that's, that's something which might be of academic interest, possibly. And that's certainly a large part of my um, discussions in this part of the world as well, is that actually... And I don't necessarily think it's to do with Kurzweil's influence. I think it's to do with a variety of things, including the way basic concepts in artificial life aren't taught in academic programs. I'm going to the Artificial Life 13 conference in the middle of this year and giving a workshop, actually, on teaching uh, artificial life for industry. Because I right. think, as you describe, it's not just that Kurzweil's crew has this concern, it's that these ideas aren't even being taught, which means that the engineers that come to you know, Silicon Valley or come to work in technology companies don't even have a background. And you can demonstrate these things, and they pick it up relatively quickly. But right. the place yes. that it needs to be done is within the academic institutions and you know, even, even on-the-job training. But I think the discussion associated with this is so far behind that you really need to return almost with a first principles kind of idea. 
I think that would be a fairly good idea, yes, just to do demonstrations and things like that, because people, people no doubt will pick it up quickly once they see it. Uh, another thing I should say about the singularitarian school, they're very, very much goal-orientated, so they, they view intelligence as being um, something which is optimizing towards goals, um, whereas if you think about knowledge in a society, it's not necessarily highly goal-orientated. Um, you could have ideas moving around in a much more sort of uh, uh, free way, you could say. And indeed, if, if you have strong goals that are constraining those ideas, then you're much less likely to have something which resembles a cultural evolution over time. It is an interesting idea associated with goals. And I mean, returning to this idea of the mind, this is certainly something that I argue in the chapter, that what exists perhaps in academia and perhaps even in, you know, Kurzweil's crew et al., is, as you say, a single view, this notion of goals as being something that's predefined. But I think with the mind in particular, my argument in the in the chapter was, as you've described, the mind can be very easily deconstructed as a purely external constraint. I mean, the nature of language internally and the way that this language is given to us by, you know, others through early childhood. Right. If, if you take language and you just keep asking, where does this come from? And it becomes fairly obvious fairly quickly that it doesn't come from you. Certainly. But also, the point that I made was that these ideas aren't mutually exclusive, that actually, if you want to start simulating the mind, as we are doing with Noble Ape, the way to do this is actually to take multiple theories of mind and put them all together, because they are in no way mutually exclusive. In fact, the interactions are just as interesting as the kind of you know, singular view of the mind that you are trying to implement. Right, right. Can you talk a little bit about some of your experiences doing this with Noble Ape? In terms of multiple minds? Well, in terms of, I mean, the way that I described it in the chapter, and this is pretty artificial, but that the original cognitive simulation was very much about a kind of reactive element. And then the social aspects created constants and kind of passive interactions that tuned the noble ape movement and some of the social interactions but weren't primary to the noble apes they weren't uh, right. aware of honor for example explicitly okay. but they had yes. the effects of honor yes and then obviously the kind of brain code narrative engine took it in a different direction can you talk about these components and their integration and some of the effects that you've seen in their interaction in principle and probably in some other artificial life systems um, you could just have a, a system which was purely uh, a Turing machine or something which was Turing complete and pretty much just leave it at that and just see what happens with the interactions. Uh, but my guess is that um, most creatures, including like uh, primates, um, aren't completely general in that sense that they have some baggage. So this is the this is where I'm getting the... Uh, notions of things like an episodic memory and things like of that nature, and that are just sort of um, they're not, not Turing complete systems. They're just uh, evolutionary older sort of uh, uh, previous baggage, but they're no doubt useful. In terms of the history of how this has uh, turned out, uh, so you start off with a three D cognitive simulation, and then linked to that, we've got the the brain code. And that's linked by something called brain probes. And that sounds a bit grandiose, but it's just uh, it's just literally a link between the two. So you can have 
uh, bytes within the, the 3D cognitive simulation, which are literally transferred into the brain code program. They literally go into one of the instructions or one of the address lo locations. Uh, and you have the reverse situation as well, where values from the brain code program at a certain address can be transferred back into the 3D cognitive simulation. And the, the brain code can actually alter the locations of those probes. So those probes have 3D locations within the, the 3D cognitive simulation, and they can move around according to how the program instructs them. And then on top of that, you've got the, um, the outer part of the brain code, which is now inside of the social graph. So you've got a sort of, you could say that's, that's a three-layer system where you've got the 3D cognitive simulation that's linked to the inner part of the brain code, and then that's in turn is linked to the outer part of the brain code. And that would cover the architecture inside of an individual. And there's a little bit more to, to it than that, though, in that the outer part of the brain code isn't being linked to the social graph. You can now have attention, which is switching between individuals within the social graph. So the idea there is that you have a kind of theatre of the mind in which um, an ape can be thinking about interactions between individuals that it's met and how they how they might sort of uh, behave on an internal stage, uh, uh, maybe interacting, exchanging ideas, monkeying around with each other's code and so on. Uh, I think that's, that's a little bit more of a realistic view of what minds are really about, especially amongst social creatures, where you might be trying to second guess who is thinking of what and what they might do in future or what they've done in the past, uh, that sort of thing. And if you read it, uh, if you're big on literature and read Shakespeare or whatever, it's, it's really all about that sort of um, guessing what other individuals are up to, what their motives might be and that sort of thing. That's a sort of brief overview of the, the architecture anyway. I guess the difficulty I found writing the chapter was associated with the quantity of data that we've actually generated. And I think this fits into another thing that I'm trying to start up with Nobelap currently, which is actively recruiting developers. There's an interesting component to that because a lot of the universities, both here and uh, internationally in India and places like that, have a requirement of some courses that the students actually join open source projects. Okay, that's, that's good. What you see through the interaction initially is somewhat artificial because you get this initial wave of folks who are students at various universities, but they don't mm -hmm. actually do anything. They kind of subscribe right. to the mailing list and yeah. do enough to, <laughs> to make the course right. work. Free or open source systems tend to be what they call duocracies in that the people who join them are usually uh, motivated to join them. Whereas if you're simply assigned to an open source project or told that you must join one, you're probably going to be much less motivated to do anything within it. Yeah, that's certainly one of the experiences that I'm trying to work through with the new group of folk that we have that have, right. have joined the project recently. And I think Noble App has many levels to it. It has many different levels. is probably the wrong term. It has many different possibilities. And mm -hmm. what has happened, and because your interests heavily ven over my interests... The project is very much centred on the kinds of things that we're discussing versus, for example, graphics or better interactions with platforms or an all-singing, all-dancing iPad version. I mean, all these kind of things. There are so many components to Nobelate. The graphics rewrite yeah. is, is an interesting one. Yeah, I'm not a graphics uh, expert myself, but um, 
certainly that would be, if you want to make it more popular, that would be a high-priority target. Uh, if you had an open GL version and could see things which looked like real apes interacting in various ways and so on, I'm sure people would be totally entranced by that if it was done well. My feeling is, although having moved to the Bay Area, having been here for about five or so months, maybe slightly less, maybe slightly more, I haven't actually met with Bruce Damon having been here. I mean, he lives about, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes away, but he's actually been out of the country for a majority of the time. Bruce, probably five, six years ago, went round and met with all the graphics-heavy companies. A lot of them are associated with film production, for example, Industrial Light Magic, these kind of companies. Mm-hmm. What has happened with Noble up until now is the kind of companies that have picked it up and used it have not been in any way interested with visuals. But I think the seed of doing talks and getting engineers on the ground interested is something right. that I could use to get these kind of companies interested to motivate perhaps a visual aspect of the simulation. The thing that interests me about all these companies is that they either have in-house or sourced externally uh, agent models that are used heavily in film and game and what have you. Okay. None of these are open source. So Noble right. immediately has an advantage that it's used by a variety of folk and it's open source. So my hope is that there is a almost mutual parasitism <laughs> that could work. But also independently, I think, finding uh, graphics-centric folk who are early OpenGL, that kind of introductory element, would be really very useful. But it's an interesting problem associated with getting folks involved and then getting them heavily motivated. And certainly you've caught on various ideas through the through the development, but really the potential, fundamentally, for your own interests. Yeah. And this is a very interesting thing to try and distill in others, particularly you know, college students and what have you who are just coming to it as part of a course requirement. Yes, yeah. Certainly reflecting on the folk that I've had the privilege of working with on Noble Ape, they've all, as you have, had particular passions and particular areas. So things like, for example, getting the Linux and Windows versions out, although I had a very rudimentary uh, method of doing both Windows and Linux, it took developers who were particularly passionate to move that development to a point where I can now almost maintain both of those, but perhaps not quite adequately. Right. In terms of your own thinking, I mean, Noble Ape is just one of a few open source projects that you've worked with. It is indeed, yes. What can you think about the other projects that you've worked with in terms of bringing in people with the right skill set? Well, it has to be said that um, other projects that I've worked on have mostly been... Uh, and my own projects are very, uh, very small. Um, I do um, do some development on the robotics operating system called ROS, made by originally made by Willow Garage. Um, but um, I'm not interacting in the same sort of way as I am uh, with you. I'm just typically writing drivers and things like that, um, and that's a much larger project. So um, I don't have a huge amount of experience on the. Uh, the more social aspects of open source development. Although I have read things like, um, I think it's the, the Art of Open Source or The Art of Community by John O'Bacon, and it has some generally good advice on organising people and uh, avoiding pitfalls. I believe he's doing a second edition of that, actually. He released a free version of that that I think I downloaded and looked at prior yeah. to actually the formal release. I have to confess, yeah. having read a few sections, I decided not to buy it. <laughs> 
It, it could have been based on my own prejudices at the time, and um, as, as we've said, the mind is an evolving thing, so I may need to revisit uh, that particular time. The thing that I read and disagreed with a good portion of, but still thought distilled some elements, was the Cathedral and the Bazaar. I'm not sure if you've read that. Oh, that was one of the um, things that I read earlier. I read it in about, about 1999 or 2000, uh, the Eric Raymond book. Uh, I just read the, uh, the online version at that time. Only later did I get the physical book. And that was definitely totally instrumental in my thinking about open source. Uh, because some of the things that he mentioned about software being primarily uh, of use value rather than of sale value and things like that, I could, I could definitely recognize that in my own past and the own, my own commercial interactions with um, commercial systems. So, yeah, I was strongly influenced by Eric Raymond and his thinking. It's interesting the things that get people interested in open source, but I think, yeah, it is a requirement of the kind of project maintainers, or I don't even know what one would call us, but, you know, the folks that are doing continued and ongoing development as a, you know, there needs to be a way almost of shepherding folk in. And the thing that I'm finding currently is that maybe, I mean, I thought, for example, about turning the Noble Ape site into a wiki, because I think that has a number of advantages in terms of the constant nature of the development, because thankfully yeah. now we have a blog, which you at least are actively posting on. But right. the way that we actually introduce people into this is just as difficult as the way we explain it to the external world. The benefit that we have with Noble Ape in some regard is the source code is still, although this may be artificial to, to you and me, it's still relatively manageable. It's something that you can read through and yes. reflect on in a relatively small amount of time. And that's something that I've always wanted to maintain just to help introduce new people. Right. It is an interesting problem in terms of actually bringing people in to do active development. And the areas that I've thought about, and we've had some discussion associated with this, relate primarily to doing long-term runs of the simulation and actually analysing um, some of that information. And Chris McIntosh uh, has stepped up to that. Chris has been involved with the project on and off for more than a year now. Yes, I've seen some of his stuff. It looks quite impressive. Yes, I think some of that is also to do with how you actually visualise the information. And what we have yeah. currently are relatively primitive visual indicators. I think there are ways that that can be spun off. But that, again, requires someone... Well, I mean, you and I and potentially Chris could muddle through it for a few years, but no doubt there's someone out there that's done these kind of things, you know, for more than a decade and can come in and immediately say, no, it should look like this. Yes, yes. But there are so many components to the simulation that um, it is almost like, I don't know, a creature, you know, the, the <laughs> evolution of thumbs, basically, that... Yeah. You know, what we have currently is something that's very good for kind of texting in terms of our general development and our thumbs are getting greater and greater, but the rest of the body associated with Noble Ape right. is, is remaining dormant. In fact, it's one of the things associated with demonstration that people regularly harp on is that the graphics look like they're from the mid-90s. Yeah, yeah, that's tr quite true, yes. If you do some proper wiki, it's probably a good idea to keep uh, to a white list of, of known participants uh, just because um, when I've seen wikis set up for artificial general intelligence systems before, they suffer a kind of entropy death over a period of time where they just accumulate so much spam that it's uh, not worth reading them. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the same phenomena is true. I found with our blog, now we've set it up, that most of the comment postings, in fact, all of the comment postings, maybe 400 to 1, 
a spam to reasonable information. I've experienced this with wikis previously, that the only way to do it, as you describe, is to do it not only with a whitelist, but with a regularly screened whitelist, because I've found experiences where people's email accounts are hacked and various other things as well. So it's it's one of those uh, multiple-edged swords. But before we digress too heavily in the technical elements... um, my plan is to put this out possibly not only to Ape Reality, but potentially also Stone Ape um, as well. For folks who are, I'm not sure, did you listen to the Stone Ape podcast? I did, yes. Yes, it was quite entertaining. Yeah, I, the interesting thing is, from my move to the Bay Area, my amount of time and the amount of time that I can actually devote to talking to someone like Heron, because it did require a certain amount of pre-planning, is very limited. I want to restart it, I think in large part because Heron himself seems to be really missing the discussion. I mean, this is something that he very heavily kind of guarded against through, but he has contacted me semi-frequently associated with resuming the discussion, um, and I've been very lacking in that regard. So it is something that I'm mindful of. I have a lost recording as well that I'm editing to put out um, relatively shortly too, which just covers my move to the Bay Area. We did record one since. But the thing that strikes me about Stone Ape is that it was a good means of getting folk who had no background on the kind of stuff that we talk about interested in these ideas. And certainly the feedback that I've received via iTunes reviews and other things seems to indicate that it did that very well and people came to it from a variety of areas. Right. Things like Stone Ape are perhaps a good way to break out of the monastery. (laughs) <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And um, the thing that strikes me about Stone Ape, as it is currently, however, is it very much captures a time in my own life which is no longer the case. And this is something that I'm going to have to kind of decompress in myself, associated with how we resume the discussion where I'm in. Basically, the experiences of my life at that time have changed to a completely different set of experiences, but still probably the same kinds of struggles and and tribulations but just on a different level my aim is to restart it but at the same point due to just my basic survival and maybe things where it stops and starts the frequency of recording may be difficult Um, but certainly heron has expressed a need for continuing the recordings and i do feel the sense of obligation almost that having started such a rich discussion with him kind of stopping it in the circumstances that it did stop seems to require i don't know at least some kind of continued discussion in some fashion. One of the things I find very interesting is that I refer to you frequently, uh, both in writing, uh, in talks, and uh, you know, occasionally in social settings as well. I have a sense of you, and you probably have a sense of me, that is very much based on the kind of nature of our communication. I think perhaps the distinction is through things like Stone Ape. I've been able to kind of introduce a wide variety of my esoteric thinking on a variety of topics. But in terms of your introduction, I mean, basically, we've had our email correspondence and the biota recording that I did, what, two odd years ago now, um, which focused on a variety of topics that have been of interest to me, and particularly um, your father's work and these kind of things. But for folks listening Mm -hmm. to this podcast, how would you introduce yourself in terms of your kind of broader thinking you know, what you've done previously in a kind of potted introduction, but also where you are currently? As a uh, potted introduction, I would probably say that I'm someone who's been interested in computers and uh, interacted with computers from a very young age. Um, I've been a professional software engineer for um, a a long time, probably since the mid-1990s, and I've done a lot of robotics stuff. 
So I'm probably a kind of combination of a software engineer, roboticist, maybe even now a little bit of artificial life type person, perhaps. I don't think of anything really additional that I would say about it, probably. My plan was this year to go back to the UK for a visit at least, uh, maybe do some talks, but it's my 10th wedding anniversary and my wife and I both had an interest to go back to the UK. But the circumstances that we find ourselves in currently seem to indicate that if we're going to move out of our current living conditions, it would require a certain amount of savings. So unfortunately, that trip has been put off, although through the potential of doing talks, I may get back to the UK. My plan was if I visited the UK to, to come up and visit you, because certainly I have a very, I don't know, idealistic view in some regard, and this <laughs> comes through Facebook photos, but also the description associated with your father's work and your mailing address and all these kind of things. Right. So I have a view of you that is very much kind of idealised in terms of your you know, father's background. Uh, right, well, it's, it's not very idealised here. There's plenty of entropy uh, going on here, certainly. Although the area that I'm living in currently, um, it is quite uh, idyllic. It's uh, uh, really in the outback of uh, northern England. So there's um, really excellent views from local locations and there's lots of places to walk in the area. Uh, there was a fellow named uh, James Herriot or Alf White who used to live in the area who wrote books called All Creatures Great and Small, which describes it quite well. So in terms of a place to live, it's probably uh, it's probably quite a nice place to live and, go on holiday or whatever, or visit. Yeah, I mean, certainly all that background propaganda I have experienced, although we didn't get to your part of the world when we lived in the UK. Mm -hmm. I think we certainly skirted around it, but the area that we lived in, although we were on the outskirts of Manchester, certainly had the benefits, as you describe, of large open countryside and a lot of walking uh, and these kind of things. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you have existed in my id in that fashion for... <laughs> the length of time that we've been corresponding. So, I mean, when we talked in the biota uh, discussion about your father's work, there mm -hmm, was something yeah. very striking, not only associated with a kind of anti-academic element, but also <laughs> a notion that, and this is very much what I feel with artificial life and no blade, that this is a kind of lifelong passion that is independent of the kind of for a paycheck element of academia. Can you distill some of that for folks who may not have heard the biota recording? Well, my father's uh, someone who's been involved with horticulture and cacti and succulents uh, most of his life. Uh, I believe before he did that, he was in the RAF as so, uh, someone predicting the weather, doing the weather forecasting. So uh, in terms of uh, being anti-academic, maybe, I think that's more confined to me personally rather than anybody else. Uh, my father's definitely involved with uh, academic people um, in botany and so on, uh, studying things like the lineage of plants and genetics and so on. Uh, me personally, I have no particular academic background. I didn't go to university uh, or I kind of flunked out of whatever little bit of ac academia I was exposed to. But these days, I'm probably not very anti-academic. Uh, I read a lot of academic papers on things a lot of books which might be described as academic. And the, the views on things like academics only doing it for the money and so on, probably that's just my, my earlier self speaking, really, rather than my current self. Ah, uh, a muted Bob Mottram. Very good, very good. <laughs> One of the folk we haven't talked about, um, who I referenced through the Origin of Mind and you've referenced in the most recent uh, Noble Eight blog, is Cynthia Brazil. Can you talk 
a little bit about her work and how it's impacted you. Right. Um, well, being interested in her work came from uh, reading about the COG robot, which was developed at MIT, one of the first humanoids to be used for some sort of academic study other than being merely animatronic or just for entertainment purposes. One of the early robots that she worked on was called Kismet. And originally it was uh, intended to be one of the heads for the COG robot, but it kind of spun off into its own project. When I first got onto the internet in the mid-90s, my primary motivation was just to download academic papers on artificial intelligence. It just so happened that MIT was one of the places uh, that had uh, an early internet presence with information about uh, AI and robotics and that sort of thing. Um, so I became aware of her, her work through through that, really. Um, later on, I think in the early 2000s, she wrote a book called Designing Sociable Robots, which described her work on Kismet. And that was definitely very influ influential on me, um, just thinking about how it might be possible to simulate emotions or an, an emotion system of some kind in a way which was which is reasonably biologically plausible uh, based on what's come from uh, information from ethology and so on. Um, in more recent times, I don't think I've followed her work very closely, but uh, I'm aware of the, the gist of it, if not the specific details. I think in recent times she's worked on a robot called Leonardo, which is a much more animatronic type system than, than Kismet was. Um, but it's very much about multiple minds. It's about theory of mind, uh, thinking of what other people's motivations might be or what other people's knowledge about a situation might be. Um, and I've definitely applied that within Noble Ape or tried to. Yes, it's one of the interesting things. I mean, I've characterised the development up until your, you know, amazing and, and vast contributions associated with my own use of quite independent and seemingly radical ideas. When I wrote a chapter called the Noble Lab Cognitive Simulation from Agar to Dreaming and Beyond, it was pointed mm -hmm. out to me by one of the reviewers that um, some of the elements of the cognitive simulation actually came from the early 60s cellular automata community um, and showed this uh, mathematically, right. which was very interesting to me to actually have an external academic who had a solid background in this explain it to me. And certainly I've right. referenced the, that from this. But what strikes me with a lot of your development is that you've taken from a variety of different sources that we are both interested in. I mean, Cynthia's work has been of interest to me in a kind of secondary or tertiary form, mm -hmm. but also um, the red card stuff, similarly secondary interest. I guess my concern up until the point that you introduced these things into Noble Ape was that I wanted to do things that were radically different. But what has happened through your introductions into the source code is that we've been able to take these ideas considerably further by combining them with other elements and, and doing things which are just as radical as, you know, simulating biology with quantum mechanics. Right. So the thing that strikes me actually about your introduction to the simulation, the work that you've done over the past two or three years, is that you've taken these kind of seed elements but heavily radicalised them and created something completely new and novel from them through combinations and these kind of things. That's, it. That's indeed um, how ideas sort of uh, originally, usually, they usually interface, uh, appear at the interfaces between uh, different kinds of interests and different communities. For folks listening in, is there any idea or anything that you'd like to distill in them associated with 
perhaps your work with Noble A or maybe something completely independently that you want to kind of put out to a broader community? Well, as, as, a, as a parting shot, as a final idea, I think just based on stuff that I've read recently uh, and stuff that I've been doing with Noble Ape over the last year or so, it looks to me as if there's a lot of information and findings in uh, sociology, uh, which potentially could be applied to artificial intelligence. Uh, uh, and it seems to me that currently there's, there's virtually no link there, but that there potentially could be. And I think that uh, uh, could be a, a rich seam of new knowledge with the ability to design systems that are really quite smart and can interact with people uh, in a much more natural way than was possible previously. Well, these kind of comments always bring a smile to my face, and I don't think it's anything that I've ever aired publicly, but certainly a Google search will give this introduction. Uh, but my father is a sociologist. Oh, okay. Right. My interaction with academia and perhaps the more radical Bob Bottrom views that I share in, in a fundamental way come through my experiences of academia as seen through my father's eyes in some regard, but also right. through my experiences of those things. I should say that I'm by no, by no means an expert on sociology, uh, but it's just from recent readings, really, that uh, it looks like this is a potential. Well, I agree entirely. Yeah, I think sociology is a form where, again, the introduction of this information requires us reaching sociology students um, with the view that it will be a generational or perhaps a multi-generational effect. But I, I agree entirely with your sentiment. Right, right. Bob, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. We we don't chat enough. Um, my hope is if we do these releases more frequently, which is another aim that I've regularly opined on uh, in various recordings, that yeah, we will have an opportunity to come back on a kind of periodic basis. Um, if you don't mind, I mean, I quite like doing these chats associated with the releases with the view that we can spin off into a variety of different directions. Yes, that would be okay. And I think um, the more... Uh, we sort of interact on, on this and uh, describe recent changes, uh, the easier it would be for anybody to sort of jump in and start making modifications on their own. Yes, if they're interested in listening to yeah. vast quantities of audio, that's always a good start. <laughs> well, audio is perhaps a little more accessible than reading tomes of information or plowing through wikis. I would have thought that when I started podcasting, but having done maybe six, seven years of this stuff, my feeling is that there are, it's, you, you're just finding a, a similar niche market, those that like to run their eyes across pages or those that like to listen to audio, but it is still roughly fundamentally the same kind of percentage numbers. Okay. <laughs> Not that I wanted to squash that beautiful vision, but that's, that's my own personal feeling, and I'll stick to that. Bob, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for the chance to chat today. Okay, no problem.